The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Though His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ the rock is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this series of episodes, we continue a verse-by-verse study of the book of 1 Thessalonians using proper hermeneutical and exegetical principles. Our goal is to understand not only the details of what was going on at the time it was written, but more importantly, to understand what it is saying to God's elect in the church today. Now the reason, as stated before, is that 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 states that God's word states that the Bible is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. And again, this is because our presuppositional approach and our biblical worldview as God's saints is that God is the ultimate authority for meaning, morals, truth, beauty, significance, and reality. 
Further, our assumption is that God has chosen to reveal himself and his attributes, his relationship to man, his plan of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and glorification via his Holy Spirit who breathes God's revelation into his word, the Bible. Now, if you will join me in opening your copy of God's word to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, we will digress just slightly and give some review to where we're at so that going forward we will have a better contextual understanding of what we're looking at in God's Word. Thus far, in the first four chapters of the book of 1 Thessalonians, what we have learned is that we have the church at Thessalonica, which was founded by Paul, Silas, and Timothy during their one of their missionary journeys through there. During that brief stay there where the church was founded, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were almost immediately forced to leave due to persecution, and having left, they went on to Athens, Berea, and finally Corinth, where within a year, Paul undertook to write this letter to the church of the Thessalonians in order to comfort and assure them. Now, the reason, as we stated before, was that Paul had received information that the Thessalonian church was undergoing intense persecution. They were being imprisoned, they were being beat, and in some cases they were being martyred. So the church was suffering greatly, and as a result of that, Paul undertook to write this letter in order to chiefly encourage the Thessalonians to remain steadfast in their faith. Secondly, Paul gave them quite a bit of instruction, as we have seen already, with regard to how to live and comport oneself in their Christian walk. Lastly, we saw that in chapter 4, verse 13, the tone and subject matter of Paul's letter changed to an eschatological tone regarding the, the second coming of the Lord. In verse 13, Paul, by reminder, states, quote, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope, unquote. So here, it, it seems likely that what was happening is that the Thessalonian church, in the midst of this persecution, trials, and suffering, were looking around them and seeing fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who were succumbing to death. They were falling asleep. They were dying. And this, to them, looked no different from those who were unsaved, who were unregenerate, and who were falling asleep and dying. Thus, there seemed to be a disparity in their minds with regard to the faith that they had, and which did not seem to be any different from the non-faith which others exhibited. Thus, in the middle of this seeming dispiritment, Paul reminds them to not sorrow because there was a difference. And the difference was that whether the brothers and sisters were alive 
or whether in fact they had fallen asleep and died. In either case, if in fact they had a firm, sincere relationship and trust and belief in Jesus Christ, then there was hope and there was a future. This is much different than the fact that those who did not have a relationship with Christ had no hope. In verse 14, Paul begins to discuss the reason for the hope that they had, a reminder, which he says, quote, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So essentially here what Paul is saying is that at that point when God is pleased to draw to himself a saint of God and they establish a relationship with him and they have a committed firm belief that Jesus died and rose again and is coming back, that this belief, this faith, this relationship changes forever the dynamics of the future of the human soul. Now the Thessalonians had already been informed as to what was going to happen and what that change looked like. So essentially what this verse is telling us in its theological context is that if God and his sovereign will is so pleased to call and to choose a believer to come to faith in himself and to uh, enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, which is constituted with that foundational conviction and belief that Jesus died and rose again, then that totality of that relationship forever changes the citizenship, so to speak, of where my eternal spirit resides. In this case, for those who have fallen asleep or who have died in Jesus, God will bring with him at his second coming. For those who do not know Jesus, they will rise again. However, it will be to rise again to judgment. Paul continues with his explanation and order of events with verse 15, saying, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. In this case, the English word prevent is a Poor choice is a word to translate the original pithalno, which means to precede or come before and to anticipate. In other words, uh, we could rephrase or paraphrase the verse to say that, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them which are asleep. In other words, those who have fallen asleep, who have died in a relationship with Christ prior to his return, will be the first in the order of first fruits to be resurrected bodily and to have their physical body rejoin their spirit, which 
has already gone home to be with the Lord at the point of physical death. In verse 16, Paul continues to explain order of events, saying, quote, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. In verse 16, Paul begins to further unravel and explain the order of events and the events themselves. Quote, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Unquote. Now, we touched on this in our last episode, and by the Lord's providence, I hope in future to give a fuller discussion of this eschatological event. Here, I will just summarize. As we pointed out, the word shout, kilusma, is a loud summons, a trumpet call, with the voice of the archangel is usually understood to be the awakening shout of the archangel, the leader of the angelic host. The trump of God is, is understood to be a trumpet which sounds at God's command. Now, historically, the church has read this verse and understood these various terms of shout and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God to be literary exaggerations or literary license to bring attention to uh, the verse at large and to have no other meaning other than that than to sort of uh, elaborate or exaggerate the excitement of the event. However, if you were a Jew in the first century and hearing the original of what Paul is talking about, the culture of the Jewish mind would come to a very different understanding of what these three things are that Paul is referring to with regard to the Lord descending and returning. In fact, in the Jewish culture and the history of the Jewish culture, ever since Leviticus chapter 23 and Numbers 29, the Jews had been celebrating various festivals and feasts which were commanded by God in the Old Testament. In this case, one of the festivals, which occurs on the Jewish month of Tishri, on the first and second, is in Hebrew, Yom Torura. It means the day of shouting. It's also called Yom Hakesheh the hidden day, or in English we refer to it as Rosh Hashanah, or the Feast of Trumpets. In the Jewish mindset, this festival, this feast, is themed with marriage, resurrection, rapture, the coronation of God as the King of Israel. During this time, various trumpets are blown, a lot of shouting and occurs, excitement, for this festival which marks this event. And it is interesting to know that among these various trumpets which are blown during the festivals, that one of the trumpets blown is called the Tekiah Gedola, which means the last trump, 
which is blown at the very end of this uh, festival with a very long and final note which symbolizes the hope of redemption and signals all of the workers who would traditionally and agriculturally speaking be involved with the barley harvest out there collecting and harvesting to complete their harvest and to come into the temple, the house of God, where they would worship. Now that is a very quick overview at 30,000 feet of what's going on during this Jewish festival slash feast. However, looking at it, certainly one can see a startling and amazing mirror image of what we understand to be the event referred to as the rapture and the language which here is referred to in verse 16. So in short, I am going to submit to you that in verse 16, Paul is not referring to literary license of terms of exaggeration or excitement, but rather he is referring to culturally known events and titles which would occur during this festival, which the Thessalonians, who were largely comprised of Jews, would clearly understand. And in any case, at this event, the first thing that would happen in verse 16, in terms of the order, was that the dead, those who had fallen asleep in a relationship with Christ, would be the first to arise, or the first fruits. Now we pick up our narrative where we left off in verse 17 from last episode, where it says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Here the word remain, perlapomai, means left over, remain, or survive, which is the same as those mentioned in verse 15. The words caught up in the original harpazo, which means to seize, to carry off by force, to snatch out or away. And in fact, the word harpazo gets translated to Latin and is the base of the word rapture. The word together, hama, at the same time, at once, together. The word clouds, nephele, which is a Greek word, which interestingly enough appears in the Septuagint translation of Exodus chapter 13, verse 21 and 22, wherein the writers and translators there pick this word, nephele, to use for the pillar of cloud, which the Israelites followed on a regular basis in leaving Egypt and in their wanderings in the 40 years through the wilderness, which we understand to be the presence of God. So taking all these events together and all these words together, what we see is that in context, the verse is saying that the dead in Christ in verse 16 are resurrected, giving uh, their physical body, a new body, which is rejoined with their spirit. And then we, those believers in Christ, which are still alive and remain at Christ's second coming, are then at the same time, or shortly thereafter, 
caught up or raptured together, together being with those who were dead and are now resurrected, with them, again, those that were dead, in the clouds, here we see the presence of the Lord, to meet that Lord in the air, and so we, both groups, are now alive forever with the Lord. Paul again refers to this uh, same chronology of events in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 through 23. Quote, But now is Christ risen from the dead, and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, and by man came also the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming." Unquote. So here, what we are understanding from Paul's message in 1 Corinthians 15 is that Adam, the federal headship of all mankind, by his choice to sin and rebel against God, and to leave his covered status, which was given to him at creation, in doing so, died. He is separated from God by this wall of sin, of falling short of God's glory. So it is that in Adam all die because of our choice in Adam. By that same logic then, those that are in Christ by God's grace are made alive. We have a restored fellowship and a relationship with God. We have are covered by Christ's imputed righteousness. And we also see that in terms of the resurrection, that Christ is the first who had risen from the dead and rose to God. Thereafter, those who die in Christ prior to his second coming are resurrected at his second coming and become the first fruits. And then shortly thereafter, or almost at the same time, those that are alive at his coming are transformed and raptured and join those who were resurrected, who were dead, and all together with Christ, they ascend to heaven to be together forever. In verse 18, Paul now says, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. The word comfort, parakaleo, a compound Greek word. Para meaning by the side or alongside or parallel. Think parallel parking. Kaleo, the second part of the compound word, meaning to call. Put together means to call or to exhort or to comfort come alongside another person and exhort or comfort that person with these facts with these realities with these truths it's very similar to the word parakletos which is translated as the comforter or the holy spirit the one who comes alongside us and comforts us with the knowledge and understanding of who god is and our relationship to him this then brings us to chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. Now, it should be understood here that given that the theme 
and the subject matter continues and there is no break here that in fact designating a new chapter here is inappropriate however be that as it may let's begin with chapter 5 verse 1 but of the times and the seasons brethren ye have no need that i write unto you now first in terms of the greek we have times the word chronos which is where we get the word chronology it means a quantitative measuring of time a simple measuring of linear time in seconds minutes hours days months years etc then we have the word seasons kairos which is more of a qualitative measuring of time it means for example moments in time or memories which are timeless not tied to any clock or calendar other translators translate times and seasons as the chronos being the big picture and kairos being the smaller picture of time measurement in any case if we paraphrase this verse he's saying there's no need to write to you the thessalonians about the timing of the events which we had just been discussing chapter 4 verse 13 all the way through to where we are now uh, i.e in terms of the return of the lord the resurrection of the dead the those that are alive at christ's coming all of this uh, timing of those events there was no need, according to Paul, to talk to the Thessalonians about that timing. However, by Paul saying this, it raises a very important question. Why did he not need to write unto them about the time? We have to infer at the end of the day that the only logical answer to why he did not need to talk about it was because they already knew they were already so generally familiar with the timing that Paul did not feel it necessary to provide any information in this letter about the times and the seasons. It infers that Paul had already taught at length during the time that he was founding the Thessalonian church about these uh, times and seasons, and as a result of that teaching, they were already aware of it. It could also be that with regard to what we discussed with the Jewish culture of Yom Teruah, that because of those cultural understandings tied with what Paul taught, that this was another reason why they had no need that he would tell them about the times and seasons. Now classically in evangelical circles, the teaching is that whenever we are discussing or inquiring regarding the specifics of the rapture or the return of the Lord, his second coming, people will go to one of several predictable verses, including Acts chapter 1 verse 7, where Jesus says the following, quote, And he, he being Jesus, said unto them, them being the disciples, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. Now, the first thing to observe here is that when Jesus says the times or the seasons, 
the word times and seasons is exactly, precisely the same two Greek words that Paul uses in chapter 5, verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians, where he says times and seasons. So we're referring to the same words. Secondly, it is admitted that when Jesus says it is not for you to know the times or the seasons, which the Father has put in his own power, that in the Greek grammar, the Greek words that are translated not are at the beginning of the sentence in order to emphasize that fact. So, in essence, we would translate the verse with an intonation saying, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. You can clearly hear the fact that in that case, using the grammar, that Jesus is emphasizing the negative fact that they will not know. It is not for them. It is not given to them to know. Unfortunately, as a result of this, as I said, traditionally and classically, evangelical Christianity will grandfather this statement to cover all of eschatology. So, in fact, what Jesus is saying that with regard to any knowledge of his second coming, the rapture, uh, the resurrection of the dead, anything along those lines, all eschatology is basically, in terms of the timing, is not for us to know. However, the problem is that when we look at the context of Acts chapter 1 verse 7, we have to seriously question whether or not that is what Jesus is talking about or not. If we go back one verse to Acts chapter 1 verse 6, we then see the question which causes or produces the answer that Jesus gives in above. In this case, the question posed by the disciples is as follows, quote, When they therefore, that's the disciples and Jesus, come together, they asked of him, him being Jesus, saying, Lord, and here's the question, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? Unquote. So the question by the disciples in its most immediate and literal sense is limited to when will Jesus restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, this is important because when Jesus says it is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, if we're going on a very literal and immediate context, then the not knowing is limited to the issue of when Jesus will restore the kingdom of Israel. It is only by inference that some will try to use this not knowing to cover all eschatological issues. Now, it's a given that the restoration of the kingdom of Israel is part of the larger eschatological plan of God. However, it is only a small part, and it is not necessarily the fact that just because Jesus says you don't know about that, 
that we won't know about other things. So we have to be careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater here. It also seems doubtful that based on Acts 1 7 that Jesus intends that we shall never know of the times or seasons when clearly in chapter 5 verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians it seems as though that the Thessalonians already have a pre-existing knowledge in its basic form of when that timing is. That being said, I suppose I should give a disclaimer to say that while we may have a general understanding in its general sense of generally when uh, the Lord's return will be, that that by no means infers that I or anyone else has a specific knowledge of the exact year, the exact month, the exact day, the exact hour when Christ will return. The two do not necessarily need to be synonymous. Thus we can say we have a general knowledge which God has given to us so as to not be caught off guard, while at the same time we do not have, need to have specific knowledge so that we're going to put an X on the calendar and say, I've got till this day to get right with the Lord, which could clearly produce a counterproductive lifestyle. In any case, we'll end here. For the time being, this concludes this uh, episode. Please join me for the next episode where we pick up Paul's discourse on eschatological events. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to email me at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Oh